Morning, everybody. So I shaved. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've, beards for me have come and gone. I've had, I've had beards over the years, but the mustache was a 40-year run. I know. And um, so young men, by and large, grow facial hair for two reasons. One, uh, because they can. Um, so that's like a transition, you know, from boy to man that you can grow facial hair. And, and then to look older. So 20, a 20-year-old Jeff Bills wanted to look older and grew a mustache. And so as I was shaving off the beard, I thought, so is that really still my motivation? Do I really want to look older anymore? And so, shaved off the mustache. And I've had three reactions. One uh, <clears throat> reaction I've heard um, is, you look amazing, you look 20 years younger, said no one but me. <laughs> that was my reaction, nobody else said. Uh, the other reaction I've gotten is, um, when people see me, they've gone, wow. wow, and just walk away. <laughs> Most people's uh, reaction is no reaction at all. Like, you know, I don't know whether you just didn't notice, it didn't matter, who cares, right? And so that's been the vast majority of, of reaction. And it reminded me of something an older pastor told me when I first came into ministry. He said, Jeff, you know, I spent a lot of time in my ministry worried about what people were thinking about me. Were they, you know, would they think of my message? What did they think about the way that I run a meeting? What do they think about the way I look? And he said, you know, it occurred to me a few years ago that by and large, people aren't thinking about me at all. And so I've wasted all this time worrying about what people think. And so I'm pretty much there. I think you don't care, and that's as it should be. What I do hope you are thinking about, though, in this summer, uh, as we go through this summer series, is I hope you're thinking about and caring about these stories that we're going to go through throughout the summer. These are epic stories of faith. These are the, um, some of the most well-known um, people in the Bible, and their stories are really fascinating stories. What's, what's really interesting is how similar people were 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago to people today. So as you read the stories, you think, this could be in the paper today. This, is, this sounds so contemporary to what's going on. What you'll find in these stories is not so much extraordinary people, but ordinary people who do extraordinary things because they're willing to trust God. That's one of the themes, I think, that runs through all of these stories. Ordinary people who do extraordinary things because they trust God. And they live in extraordinary times. Now, I don't know about you, but I have heard said on a number of occasions over the last year or so that we are living in extraordinary times. We are living in extraordinary times in this country. And I think that's probably true. And so I'm wondering if ordinary people like us 
living in extraordinary times can't do extraordinary things if we trust in God. So I hope that is part of what this story becomes for, these stories become for us as we go through them. So we're going to start with an ordinary guy named Moses this morning. You heard a, a description of uh, his story a little bit. I want to give my own version of a description of Moses' life. And I want to go back to where we just ended. So we spent five weeks looking at the story of jo uh, Joseph. And that story ended with Joseph being reconciled to his brothers, forgiveness being offered for them selling him into slavery. Joseph, you'll remember, has become Pharaoh's kind of chief of staff because he was able to interpret a dream that Pharaoh had where God was letting them know that Egypt was going to go, actually the world was going to go through seven bumper crop years followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph, interpreting this dream, then became uh, the person charged with the responsibility of making sure that in the bumper crop years, they were saving enough provision and food to provide for the population during the seven years of famine. So that was the role he was playing. The brothers were experiencing the famine years now. They come to Egypt to seek out provision so that they would survive. So they come to uh, the Egyptian uh, head of government um, and are looking for food, and lo and behold, it's, it's Joseph. Right? So after this reconciliation takes place, the brothers' families all join them in Egypt. And so Joseph is reunited with his extended family, brothers, and uh, their families, and they settle in Egypt. And when the book of Exodus starts, Joseph and his brothers, they're all gone. They've all died, and, but their heirs have stayed behind. And to use kind of a biblical phrase, that group of people have been fruitful and multiplied. All right, so their, their families are growing, their population, their numbers are growing. Others, uh, other Hebrews from other areas are now migrating toward uh, Egypt because they hear things are good there and they've got, you know, good schools and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so this Hebrew population is growing. Now, meantime, the Egyptians have forgotten all about Joseph. There's a couple of generations, several generations that have gone by, and so the people who are now in charge in Egypt have no memory of Joseph. And I thought that was kind of strange until I thought about, you know, he's sort of like the chief of staff, and who remembers, you know, the chief of staff when President Eisenhower was president, right? You don't remember the chief of staff. You don't remember the second in command. You remember maybe the head guy, but you don't remember those people who served him. So they've forgotten who Joseph is. All they know is they have an immigration problem. They have an immigration problem. They have this population of people who aren't from Egypt, who speak a different language, who have a different culture, who worship a different God, who are growing by leaps and bounds, 
and they are really getting troubled by this. This is a problem, and they're coming to Pharaoh saying, we've got to solve our immigration problem. And Pharaoh decides that in order to solve the problem, he'll enslave this population of Hebrew people, and he will have them worked very, very hard, and he'll use them to, you know, redo their infrastructure and, you know, all kinds of uh, building projects and so forth that nobody else really wants to do. So they're going to do all of this hard work, and he wants them driven really hard, thinking that that will stop them from procreating. That doesn't happen. So they're working really hard. These people are enslaved, but they're continuing to be fruitful and multiplying, and their numbers continue to increase. And so Pharaoh says, in effect, Desperate times call for desperate measures. And so we, he decrees that all male Hebrew children born are to be killed. Female children are allowed to uh, survive. Male children are to be killed. And so this Hebrew couple have a baby boy. And the mother, in a desperate attempt to save her child from being killed, creates this little basket puts him in it, puts it in the Nile River. At just that time, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to take a bath. And she hears a noise. She hears this crying. She sees this wicker basket, draws it in close, and finds this baby. Moses' sister is kind of standing, watching this take place. She runs down to Pharaoh's daughter and says, would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for you? And she says, great idea. So she runs and gets her mom, brings her mom down, who is the baby's biological mother, to nurse him. Pharaoh's daughter decides she's going to adopt this baby as her own and names him Moses. Pretty extraordinary beginning to life, right? But then, you know, life goes on. He be, he's raised in the Pharaoh's court. He's raised um, among uh, the elite of Egypt, but he's not really one of them. He is born to slaves, but he's not really one of them. He's just this adopted guy who's kind of living in between these two worlds. We fast forward, and he is out one day, walking around, and he must be near one of these building projects, and he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating on a Hebrew slave. And he is enraged, and in his rage, he kills the Egyptian. And then in fear that he's going to be, you know, executed himself for murder, he takes off, he leaves Egypt and goes to Midian. And there he connects up with a guy named Jethro, who's basically a rancher, and he begins to work for Jethro. Jethro has a daughter. Moses marries Jethro's daughter. And that's where he spends decades, living a normal life on a ranch, taking care of livestock. Normal life. The next part of the story is a part that you're probably really familiar with. If you've read anything at all, if you've ever been to Sunday school, Moses is out one day with the livestock, and off in the distance, he sees a bush on fire. And the bush is not being consumed by the fire, which is a curiosity. And so he does what any 
person would probably do. He walks over to see this strange thing that's happening and then hears God's voice. Moses, take off your sandals. You are standing on holy ground. And what takes place next is really kind of fascinating as God gives instructions to Moses that he is to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of the slaves, God's people, and to lead them into the promised land. It's fascinating, and it's kind of humorous. So you need to read this. It's, it's the book of Exodus. That's one of the things I hope you do over the summer when you hear um, the message, you know, and who the person is that sometime during that week that you'll, uh, during the next week, you'll read the story for yourself and let God speak to your heart and to your mind um, through these stories just as he's done with me. So um, Moses hears God's call and says, um, no, no, I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. That's, that's crazy. What, why would I do that? I, I, I'm not the guy. I'm, are you? You must mean my brother Aaron. He literally, he's trying to get his brother to take the job. I'm not articulate. I don't know enough. I'm not the guy. And by the way, I've got a rap sheet back in Egypt. I should not be going back there. He's got all of these reasons why this is a bad idea. And they're not bad reasons, really, you know? Like, he's not wrong about the things that are wrong with him. But all of those reasons can really be kind of wrapped up in this one sentence that he says to God. It's found in the third chapter of Exodus, verse 11. It says this, and the words are on the screen. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead people, the people of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? It's a great question, right? Why, why would you pick me? I'm not qualified for this task. And I think this is one of those things that we can all relate to, right? When God calls you, when you feel a, a tug of God to do something that is outside of your comfort zone, what is your reaction? No, I'm not going to do that. Who am I? I'm not qualified to do that. I've shared on many occasions about my own call into ministry. For a couple of years, I was saying no to God. I, I had this sense that God was calling me into pastoral ministry, but I was saying no for the exact same, who am I? There are people who are way smarter, people who know the Bible better, people who know theology at a much deeper level, people who are far more qualified than me. No, I'm not going to do that, God. Every time there's been a God-sized challenge, my gut instinct, my, my knee-jerk reaction is no. So here's one of the first things I think we can learn from a reluctant leader like Moses, an ordinary guy like us. When God says go, don't say no. When God says go, don't say no. I know it's tempting, you know, and it feels like 
all of the logical reasons in the world would have me say no. So, you know, God calls me into ministry. I reluctantly say yes. God calls, us to, calls me to start a church in this community. And, and my first reaction is no. Super, that's what superstar pastors do. Like, you know, the guys who, they've got it all together. They're, you know, good-looking guys wearing skinny jeans and, you know, play guitar. Those guys, you know, they went to Princeton. <laughs> Princeton, you know. I could have gone to Princeton, except for the whole grade thing. <laughs> no, no, I'm not qualified. Who am I? Is his question. Here's how God answers that. Verse 12. God answered, I will be with you. It's not about you, Moses. It's not about you, Jeff. It's not about you. It's about me. God didn't need Moses. He could have used Aaron. He could have used a mule if he wanted to. God doesn't need us. God chooses to use us for his own purposes. And it's humbling, isn't it? When God chooses to use you to do something that you don't feel qualified to do. So when God says go, don't say no. Don't miss the opportunity that God wants to give you. God wants to bless you as you bless others. And so this is a big project. God isn't calling Moses, you know, to, to uh, do a job change or anything. He's calling Moses to be a blessing to these enslaved people. And so one of the, one of the markers of a God-sized challenge, a God tug on the heart, is that it's going to be a blessing not just to you or to your family, but that it's going to be a blessing to the lives of the people that you're going to touch. So then the second thing, you know, uh, that we pick up from Moses, this reluctant leader, um, comes later in the story. So he finally says yes. He goes to Pharaoh. He's asking Pharaoh to release the people. They're, he's not letting them go. And um, uh, so God says, sends these ten plagues. And finally, uh, the last one, the death of the firstborn male child in each household convinces Pharaoh that God is serious and he needs to release these Hebrew slaves. And he sends them out. And they, and they head out to the promised land, wherever that is. They're just following Moses, wherever, he, wherever he's going to take them. And um, somewhere along the line, as the grief and the fog of what just took place begins to dissipate and Pharaoh begins to look around at his country and realize the economic implication, the socioeconomic implication of freeing hundreds of thousands of slaves 
and just letting them go is having on his country. And he has a change of mind and says, go get them. Bring those slaves back here and sends his army out to go after them. So they're on their way. The, the uh, Hebrews are on their way. They've come to the Red Sea. They've come to the Red Sea. And they look behind them and they see off in the distance a dust cloud. And they know that it's the army of Pharaoh coming after them. What do you do when you come to the Red Sea and you feel trapped? So here's the second thing, a little adage that we can take from, from Moses' story. When you come to the Red Sea, keep going. When you come to the Red Sea, keep going. So here they are, they're trapped, right? It's the Red Sea. They've got this army behind them. These are the faithful people who God has rescued from, from their bondage, their slavery. They've been slaves for hundreds of years. Um, they've been crying out to God for release for all of these generations. And so now here they are, um, finally free, but in this tight spot. And so these great men and women of faith react this way. It's in Exodus chapter 12. Verses 12 through 14, they say to Moses, didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? It's better to be slaves in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. This is, these are faithful people, right? Here's what Moses says in response. Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stay still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Such a human story, right? God does this amazing thing, but now as we are moving into this new reality, we find a roadblock, a barrier, the Red Sea. You're never going to be, how do you cross the Red Sea? We don't have boats and so forth. We're stuck and the enemy is coming in and we're now going, I never should have left. I knew I shouldn't have done it. I was crazy to think I could do this. I knew it was going to go badly. Why did I listen to bills? Why did I listen to God? Why did I take this step? And Moses, the reluctant leader, steps up as a leader and says, don't give in to fear. Don't give in to your fears. Keep the faith. God is going to show up. And man, I can testify to how God shows up. You know, God called me into ministry, pastoral ministry. That doesn't mean that I walked in and, you know, it went all up and to the right. You know, things were great. I came to, you know, the Methodist folks and said, hey, I want to be a pastor. And they went, oh, thank goodness. You're, we are so thankful that you're coming. 
what they actually said was, no, no, we don't think, we don't think so. Wait, wait, God told me. Oh, okay. Now, eventually it worked out, but it, it went badly for a while is what I'm saying. When, when God said, I want you to start this church in Boris, it wasn't like, boom, you know, this thing showed up. There were challenges, difficulties, roadblocks. People that I thought would be supportive who weren't. People who I didn't know came against it. You know, and so you're kind of out in the desert going, wait a minute, God. You told me to do this, and now this? And you make a choice. Am I going to give in to fear or am I going to continue to trust God? And when you continue to trust God, that's when you see God's hand at work. And it's no longer a story that somebody else is telling. Now you're living it. You're seeing it firsthand that God is faithful and God makes a way through the Red Sea. God does not abandon us when we step up to do the things he's called us to do. Now, I'm talking about my own experience, my own stories, but it's not about pastoral ministry. It's, this is not about you know, becoming a pastor. This is really about how God wants to use you, your unique skills, your unique passions, your unique God-designed personality and so forth to do significant things for the lives or in the lives of others. What is it for you? You know, maybe for you it's getting involved in some kind of social action, social concern, where you see people who are suffering and struggling and you just feel a heart for them and you feel called by God to be a difference maker in their lives. One of the things I was sharing at the earlier service is, you know, Right now in our country, I know you guys know this, we have an opioid epidemic. And it's not just in this country, it's in this state and in our county. I have done three funerals for people in their 20s who have died of opioid addiction overdose. Young guys, lives robbed because of an addiction to opioid drugs. Maybe this is an area that you're called to. Maybe it's something like that. They're trying to get churches involved in this, um, in this issue and, you know, to partner up with, with uh, the social services and law enforcement and the political wing and so forth uh, to be a part of trying to find a solution to rescue thousands and thousands and thousands of people just like us who got caught up into this addiction. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know where God's calling you. That's up to you to listen to. How can God use you to bring blessings into the lives of others? 
And when you do, when you find that, when you respond to that and you start in that, here's the warning. There's going to become, there's going to come those Dead Sea experiences or Red Sea experiences. Those times where you just, it looks like there's, you're stuck and you can't believe you're in the predicament you're in. And that's where you get to see God. So when you get to the Red Sea, keep going. Here's what God said to the, to the Hebrew uh, slaves. That, you know, they're freaking out. Moses is saying, trust God. Here's what God says to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Go. Don't stop. Keep going. Maybe you're in that moment right now, and I want you to hear Exodus 12, 15. Don't just cry out to God. Keep moving. All right. I'm fired up by this stuff, I got to tell you. It's better than a hot dog. All right. Um, one last thing from this story. And you know, I, I'm condensing this epic story into 30 minutes. So there's a whole lot that's being left out. And that's why you need to read the story for yourself um, and, and unpack it in your own heart and in your own mind um, because there's rich stuff here. So one last thing, and here's the way I would describe it. Everyone needs the support of a great team. Everyone needs the support of a great team. When God is calling you to do something um, that's going to make a difference, something extraordinary, you can't do it by yourself. Moses didn't do it by himself. Moses had a great team of people formed around him. He had his brother Aaron. He had his father-in-law Jethro. He had his uh, right-hand man, Joshua. He had um, a friend, a guy named Her. I think that was his last name. I think his first name was Ben. Um, but that's... <laughs> no. So he has these, these guys around him, and there's stories throughout Exodus how these guys came along and were great friends, great teammates, great supporters at just the time that Moses needed them. And it's kind of captured for me in this one story. There's a battle going on. Um, the Hebrews are battling an enemy, and um, Moses is uh, standing up on a hill. Joshua's leading the battle, and Moses has just got his hands raised over the battle. And as his hands are raised, the Hebrews are winning the battle. They're prevailing against the enemy. But, you know, you do this for a while, and your arms get tired, right? And so he's just like, ah, puts his arms down and notices that the tide of the battle begins to change. And so the Hebrews begin to uh, start losing the battle. And Moses, looking at that, puts his arms back up, and the tide turns, and they begin to win the battle. Puts them down, and they start to lose up. They start to win. You can imagine Joshua up there going, would you keep your arms up? But he can. His arms, he's exhausted. 
It's hour after hour after hour. He can't keep his arms up. And so Aaron, his brother, and his buddy, her, come over, and they grab his arms, his hands, and they just hold his arms up for him in the midst of the battle. And that's a great image of what a great team looks like, that while you're in the midst of the struggle, as you're in the midst of the battle, do you have those people in your life who come alongside you and hold your arms up when you can't do it anymore? Because the battle is real, the struggle is real. It is hard to work against the forces of darkness and evil. It is a challenge beyond any individual. And even with God on our side, we need a great team of people. Not just one, but we need a team of people. You need a team of people around you. I am so thankful for the people who have been a part of that in my life. Who have come alongside in those difficult times, in those times where I've been discouraged or, or overwhelmed or unsure and just feel like I've been holding my arms up for too long and to have them come along and to give me that kind of support has been a tremendous blessing. So you may be asking, how do I get those people? You know, like, I don't even know where I'd begin. You begin by being one of those people to somebody else to see somebody who is in the battle, to see somebody who is doing a good work and to come up alongside that person and to simply say, hey, I'm here for you. Is there something I can do to help? You can't imagine how encouraging that is to somebody who's in the midst of a struggle. And again, I'm talking about all kinds of struggles that folks are involved in. Maybe it's a personal struggle. Maybe it's a relational struggle. Maybe it's, maybe it's a ministry struggle. They're, they're working hard on behalf of people and just feeling a little overwhelmed. And when you come up and say, hey, I'm here to help, it just, it lightens the load. And here's what happens. When you do that for somebody and you consistently do that for them, there's going to come a point where they're going to end up doing that for you. They're not even going to have to think about it. It's just this kind of natural reaction of, man, I see that you're struggling right now. How can I help you? How can I support you? So a powerful story an epic story, but it's an ordinary guy, an ordinary guy that God uses to do an extraordinary thing because he chooses to trust God. Let's be that kind of ordinary. And remember these lessons from Moses. When God says go, don't say no. When you come to the Red Sea, keep going. And develop around yourself a great team. 
Let's stand for closing prayer. So God, thank you for stories like the Exodus that happened thousands of years ago. And yet, is contemporary because human nature is the same today as it was then. Your love for people and your desire to work in and through people is the same today as it was then. And so Lord, help us to hear the call and help us to respond not depending on ourselves and our own qualifications, but putting our faith in you, our trust in you, our hope in you, that you can use us to be a blessing to others. And all of the praise and all of the glory and all of the honor is yours, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.